Well, hello, Madison Church. My name is Jason. I'm so glad to be with you today. Uh, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to teach you about a very difficult topic. You know, a few years ago, my parents gave me and my kids the best gift ever, a trip to London and Paris. Now, I know you're jealous, but they're my parents, not yours. And I know it's not fair, but they give me gifts and it's awesome. And one of the things we did when we were in London was see where the royal family lived. We went to Buckingham Palace and saw the changing of the guard and all the pageantry there. And then we went to Windsor Castle and we went into even one of the smallest of rooms and saw all the things on the wall. And I told my kids, you know, we could fit about five of our homes in this room alone. And we probably could have fit about 10 of our homes in one of the smallest rooms there. We went to the crown jewels and my kids picked out which crown that they would wear. And then we went and our favorite spot was going to the garage where all the cars and the coaches and the carriages that the kings and queens and princesses and princesses and duchess and duchess and all the people, a part of the royal family would ride in throughout the town, throughout the city as they went through parades and everything. And after seeing all this, we all thought there'd be no better life than being a part of the royal family. In fact, we pretended that I was King Jason and my kids were the prince and princesses and we did our waving and everything. And of course, it was just a fantasy. But it wasn't just a fantasy for me and my kids. It was actually a fantasy for the real royal family. A couple of weeks ago, you may recall that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry did an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And now before my mom, who is British, turns off this message for me bashing the royal family. I'm not here to bash the royal family. I'm not here to comment on whether what she said was accurate or inaccurate. That's not mine to judge. But what I found absolutely heartbreaking and was a certain reality of her life was that a person such as Meghan Markle, who everybody thought had everything, actually felt like she had nothing. Take a look at this video. Look, I was really ashamed to say it at the time and ashamed to have to admit it to Harry, especially, um, because I know how much loss he suffered. Uh But I knew that if I didn't say it, that I would do it. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. You know, as the world heard this, many reacted in shock that somebody who was part of a family who, who had everything could feel like she had nothing and wanted to end her life. But the reality is, is that this revelation should not come as a shock to any of us. Whether you are in a royal family or in just a regular family, there can come a point where the lights turn off and what once seems so good now feels so bad. Today, we are concluding our series called Mind Matters, and we're diving into deep waters today. The last couple of weeks, Stephen has talked about anxiety and depression. But today, we're going to take it one step further and talk about what happens when anxiety and depression totally take over and become overwhelming, and people step into what we call suicidal ideation, in other words, thinking about suicide. Before we get into this topic, a couple things I, I want to say to a couple of different groups here. First of all, for some of you listening, you've had thoughts about suicide. And if you are at that point right now where you're contemplating ending your life, get help right away. Stop listening to this message and call this number, 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. That's a suicide prevention lifeline, and they'll be there to help you. 
Others of you, another group here, have had somebody close to you take their own lives and you're left with emotions that are so strong and sometimes seem so conflicting. Sometimes you're sad because you miss them. Sometimes you're mad at them. And if that's you, I just want to say it's okay. That's normal. And we can point you to professionals who can help you navigate those tough emotions. And for some of you, maybe you were taught that what your family member did or what your friend did when they took their own life is the unforgivable sin. And now they're forever separated from God. I want you to reassure you today that they are not forever separated from God. God's love for them never changed. In fact, Paul would say in Romans, neither life nor death can separate me from God's love. See, in that moment when they decided to end their lives, they were sick. They couldn't reason properly. And God only has compassion on them. And when they entered into his presence, scripture says that he wiped every tear from their eyes. And you can be assured of that. That said, it'd be easy for many of you to tune out at this moment, thinking that this message does not apply to you. And I'm begging you not to. I, I hope it doesn't ever specifically apply to you where you may be at the point of contemplating suicide, but I can guarantee you that you will know somebody who will contemplate these thoughts. And I can guarantee you at some point along the way, you will wrestle with anxiety and depression that if gone unchecked, it will lead to these even darker thoughts. You see, it's not as uncommon as we may think it is. The statistics show this. While suicide rates have, for the most part, dropped across the world over the last 20 years, the opposite has been true in the United States. According to the CDC, from 1999 to 2017, suicide rates increased 33% in the United States. And since 2006, the annual increase has been at a greater pace. And a lot of that has to do with social media. Suicide is the number two cause of death for, pe for people ages 10 to 34. In fact, one out of every three young adults has contemplated it. It is the number four cause of death for ages 35 to 57. And overall, for all ages, it's the number 10 cause of death. And those are all pre-COVID numbers. But we don't need stats to prove that this is true. I could tell you of some friends who walked into their upstairs bathroom one afternoon to find their 15-year-old son gone. He had taken his own life. And it's still a mystery to them why, because they had been joking with him that morning. I could tell you of a pastor friend of a very large church who reached out to me a few years back asking for a reference for a counselor, and I gave it to him. Then a couple of weeks later, I wanted to see how he was doing, so I asked him if he wanted to grab lunch someday, and I never heard back. He had taken his own life. I could tell you of a husband whose wife of 35 years just this past December in the midst of COVID lost her battle with depression and ended her life. And I could tell you of my own story of how just three years ago or a little under three years ago, the light inside my soul went out and how for a few days, these dark thoughts that I never thought would be a part of my thinking came into my reality. I could tell you of how I told people to hide the pills and take away my car keys one day because I was afraid of what I might do. I could tell you of how crazy, crazy thoughts overwhelmed my mind one day when I was in the parking lot of REI and I was just sitting there sobbing, scared to death, not knowing what I was going to do. And I could tell you of the journey I've been on and how I'm glad I'm standing here today, the healthiest I've ever been by far in my life. See, it's not as uncommon as you think. You see it throughout scripture. 
Moses asked God to kill him in Numbers 11. Job cried out, I wish I had died before an eye saw me. Jeremiah, Hannah, David, and Jonah all had suicidal thoughts. And today I want us to focus on one hero of the faith in scripture who also was there. His name's Elijah. Look at what Elijah does in 1 Kings 19.4. It says this, he came to a broom brush, that's Elijah, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's wrestling with the darkest of thoughts. He's thinking about ending it all. And as we see him there wrestling with these, we also must wrestle with the same thing. And we must ask ourselves, how do you get to that place? And how do you get out of that place? Because here's the reality that Elijah's life shows us. There are two paths you can take. You can take the path of despair or you can take the path of hope. Unfortunately, at the beginning, Elijah's on the path of despair. So what happens when we go on the path of despair? How do we get to total despair? Well, there are many steps and I'm just going to mention a few today that we take when we get to utter despair. The first step is this, disappointment. It begins with disappointment. It seems almost shocking that Elijah was at this point in his life because if you read the story just one chapter earlier, Elijah was on top of the world. He had challenged Ahab and the prophets of Baal to a duel to see whose God was more powerful, Baal or the true God. And if you remember the story, they had a kind of a showdown with an altar and asked uh, their God to light the altar on fire and the Baal didn't do it, but then Elijah did it. And it was just this dramatic scene where he won the, the showdown. Not only that, uh, the uh, prophets of Baal ended up dying because Elijah uh, had them killed. So it's like total victory. And God brings rain to, to the nation because it had been without rain for several years. He is on top of the world. He's thinking, now everything will be up and to the right. Finally, I'm in a season of blessing. Life's going to be good. But then literally the next chapter, we read this. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. By the way, Jezebel is Ahab's wife. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You see, in that moment where Elijah thought that the hard part was over, the hard part was just beginning. He was scared quite literally to death. And while we don't know exactly what he was thinking, my guess he's thinking, God, you got to be kidding me. I just did the hard stuff. Now it's supposed to be a blessing, but, but now she's trying to kill me. This wasn't the next chapter. This isn't fair, God. And so he runs. He runs away from Jezebel. He runs away from God. He runs away from everything he knows. He is disappointed. And while our situations may be different, the path of despair begins the moment when you thought everything was finally turning good for you, but it actually gets worse. It's the marriage you had been so sure of that was finally turning the corner. After all, you had just had a couple of good months with each other. You saw a counselor, you went on a good vacation, but now just a few months removed from that, you're not talking to each other. And the issues are far deeper than they were before. It's the job situation that left you so confused when you got the job one year ago as your dream job, but now that dream job has turned into a nightmare. It's the health situation where you just got over one health scare and now you're into another health scare. Whatever it is, this was supposed to be the moment where you stepped into God's blessing, but now you feel like he's cursing you. 
And you're so disappointed in God and life and in others. And like Elijah, all you want to do is run. So the first step on the path of despair is disappointment. The second step is disconnection. Disconnecting from others. We're not going to spend long here because Stephen talked about this last week. But the reality is that the path to despair always forces you to connect, uh, disconnect with others along the way. And the reason you do this is you think nobody gets it. Nobody knows what I'm feeling. Or you're filled with, filled with so much shame about who you are, what you have did, that you think nobody wants to be around me. Or, or maybe you think this is just my issue. I need to solve it myself. Whatever it is, you think you need to be alone. This is what Elijah did. He disconnected. Look at a seemingly innocent statement in verse 3. It says this, When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He left the person who was on the journey with him and he went into the wilderness alone. Let me ask you, have you walked into the wilderness alone? In your addiction that you are so ashamed of, have you walked into the wilderness alone? In your constant worry, have you walked into the wilderness alone? In your relationship issues, have you walked into the wilderness alone? In your anxiety and depression, have you walked into the wilderness alone? The wilderness is no place to be alone. And yet so often we are alone there. First step is disappointment. The second step on the path of despair is disconnection. The third step is disillusionment. It's disillusionment. In the 1800s, there was a preacher named Charles Spurgeon. You may have heard of him. Following his death in 1892, Charles Spurgeon was labeled the Prince of Preachers. He was known for his incredible humor, hearty laugh, penetrating preaching. He would preach to vast audiences of 10,000, often without a microphone. And by the age of 22, he was the most popular preacher in England. His sermons actually sold so much that even to this day, they're one of the best-selling books of all time. It has been estimated that he reached 10 million people during his lifetime. Yet despite his enormous influence and success in ministry, Spurgeon wrestled with deep depression and suicidal thoughts. This is compounded by physical ailments and other issues in his life. In 1856, Spurgeon was speaking at the music hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens, which was packed far beyond its 10,000-person capacity. In the midst of that crowd, somebody yelled, Fire! And all of a sudden, there was a big stampede and seven people died. And at the age of 22, Spurgeon witnessed this. And those closest to him said that he never recovered fully from the trauma of that event. He would even later say that it brought him to the burning furnace of insanity. The trauma was so bad. This battle with emotional and mental anguish continued even as his popularity grew. At times, he would not even be able to understand it or explain it. And he described his state of being like this. My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. See, this is what happens when we take this third step. We become disillusioned. We no longer can see the good in front of us. And like Spurgeon, we find ourselves overwhelmed by sorrow and fear. And sometimes we can't even explain it. Elijah knew this. He no longer could think straight or see straight. Because if he could, he would have known that God who helped him defeat the prophets of Baal could certainly help him stand up against one person, Jezebel. But he couldn't see that. And soon he just started to stare at Jezebel. And the more he stared at her and the problems that she created for him, the bigger he 
thought his fear was, the more troubling the situation became. In fact, it's fascinating. Elijah actually became so disillusioned that he went to a much more dangerous place than where Jezebel was. Verses 3 to 4 says that he went past Beersheba into the wilderness. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but it was. In fact, the wilderness or where Beersheba was actually signified a different territory, which was much more dangerous than where he was. He went to a far more dangerous place. And that's what happens to us too. In our disillusionment, we go to a far more dangerous place. We just need to get away from our Jezebels. Whatever our Jezebels are, a broken marriage, a tough job, a financial situation, you fill in the blank. They just seem too big. They're too hard to beat. And so we walk without even realizing it into a more dangerous place, into the wilderness. We walk into addictions or affairs or hooking up or just blatant sin. We walk into deeper anxiety or deeper worry. We walk into hyper control. We walk into overeating or overspending. We walk into workaholism. We walk into deep crippling grief and emotions that go out of control. We walk into a life where we're paralyzed by fear. We just need to get away from our Jezebel. And so we walk into a much more dangerous place. And we don't even notice. Let me ask you, have you and your disillusionment over your current situation and that hopelessness you feel, have you walked away into a more dangerous wilderness? Because it's very common. That's what happens on the path of despair. And when you start to do that, you take the fourth step on the path of despair, and that's depletion. Depletion. This is what happened to Elijah. Look at verse 4. He came to a broom bush, bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. You see, Elijah was just done. He was depleted emotionally. He was depleted relationally. He was depleted spiritually. He was depleted physically. And so he said the only words he could think to say. He said, God, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. Just take my life. I've had enough. Uh, I remember as I sat there in that REI parking lot, crippled with fear and grief, not knowing what to think or do and having these crazy thoughts in my mind. I could hardly see because tears were pouring out of my eyes. I was actually having a hard time breathing. I was having an anxiety attack. I felt this profound, indescribable knot in my stomach that wouldn't go away. I was so tired. I was so tired of trying to beat the addiction in my life that I couldn't beat. At least not then. So tired of the relational struggles I was having in life. I was so tired from work. I was so tired from feeling distant from God. I was so tired. I just wanted to sleep. And like Elijah, I said, I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. And some of you are there. You're in that place of complete depletion where you're tired emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, and you're just saying right now, I've had enough. And when you are there, you're just one small step from the place of utter despair. You're one small step away from thinking there is absolutely no hope. See, when you go from disappointment to disconnection to disillusionment to to depletion, Ultimately, you end up in despair. And the only 
real step after despair is death. So let me ask you, are you on this path? And if so, how far have you traveled down it? Or do you know somebody who is on this path of despair, who has walked into the wilderness alone, and they may not even know it? You don't have to stay there, and they don't have to stay there. There is a different path. It is the path of hope. It's the path that Elijah got on. It's the path that you and I can get on as well. So how do you get on that path? Well, first of all, step one, take God's hand. Take God's hand. Oftentimes when we're in a place of despair, we assume that it is us, up to us to reach up to God, to try harder. But the reality is it's not up to us to reach up to God. God is actually reaching down to us. He knows we have nothing left. He knows we're depleted and he's offering us his hand. This is what he did with Elijah. Elijah is under the tree just hoping to die. But look at verse five. God appears all at once. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Elijah needed to be reminded that God had not gone anywhere. Elijah needed to know that he could never outrun God. Elijah needed to know that when life broke his heart, God came running close. In fact, in Psalms, it says that God is close to the brokenhearted. He's not far away. He actually leans in and he comes to you and he offers you his hand. And I can just picture the angel by the tree as Elijah just crashed under it, just saying, okay, Elijah, it's time to get up. Would you just take my hand? Let's get up and have some breakfast. And that's what he does with us. I remember shortly after that day in the REI parking lot, when I was just done, I found myself at a treatment center in Arizona. I was no longer having crazy thoughts of suicide or anything like that, but I was still depressed and suffering with so much anxiety and just sobbing every day. I thought God was far from me. But each day I just took a walk. And I just started to walk around the grounds there. And in the hot Arizona sun, I would say these words from Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I kept saying them even when I wasn't sure if I believed them. And I can't fully explain it, but like Elijah, I felt God reaching out his hands to me and saying, Jason, I'm here. Let me help you up. And each day he helped me up a little bit more. Each day when my world had totally collapsed, God was there saying, okay, come on, would you take my hand? I know this is overwhelming, but I'm here. And he helped me walk again. And he'll do the same for you. He is reaching out his hand saying, will you let me help you up? So step number one, take God's hand. Step number two, very practical, take care of your body. Take care of your body. I find it fascinating when God helped Elijah up, he didn't tell him to read the Bible or go attend church or or do something really spiritual. Instead, he said, Elijah, you need to eat and you need to take a nap. In fact, that's what Elijah did. He, he ate the food that the angel gave him and then he went back to sleep. See, here's what God knows that we often forget that one of the most important parts of being on the path to emotional health is this, that physical health is often the doorway to mental health. Physical health is often the doorway to mental health. You know, a recent study was done on people who wrestled with depression. And what their doctors did is they prescribed them simply 20 to 30 minutes of exercise a day, of just walking. And what was fascinating is that 65% of people who just started 
walking 20 to 30 minutes a day said that their depression lifted. Now, this is not a magic pill, but it gets at something very important. That when we take care of our body, we start to take care of our soul. I get this. I made simple changes nearly three years ago in my physical health that allowed me to find some mental health. I used to drink tons of Coca-Cola every day. But once my world came crashing in, I stopped drinking soda and started drinking several glasses of water each day. I was shocked to find water actually makes you feel good. Doesn't taste as good as Coke. You'll never convince me of that, but it actually makes you feel better. And I started walking, doing simple exercises each day. In fact, every morning when I wake up and I spend time with God, I actually journal whether I have eaten fruit, gotten a good night's sleep, done my exercise, and whether I've had a couple, uh, several glasses of water. And I just, I just log it to see if I've done that. So let me ask you, if you're on this path of despair, are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating healthy? When was the last time you exercised or just went for a walk or went to the gym? See, physical health is often the doorway to mental health. So step two, take care of your body. Step one, take God's head. Step three, very important, just take one step at a time. Take one step at a time. See, one of the things that keeps us on the path of despair is that it seems like the journey to hope is just too long and too hard. God gets this. He knew it was the case for Elijah. This, that's why he says these words in verse 7. Get up and eat, for this journey is too much for you. In other words, Elijah, I know that if you start to think of all the steps you need to take to get where you want to get to as far as uh, a healthy uh, life, that it just seems too big. It's too much for you, Elijah. That journey's too hard. But here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take the first step. Get up and eat. And Elijah did. He took that first step. Then he took the next step. Then the next step, one step at a time. Let me ask you, does the journey you're on seem too much for you? Here's the reality. It is. It is too much. It's too much for you to look at where your marriage is now to where you fully want it to be. That's too far away. It's too much for you to look at where your financial situation is now compared to where you want it to be. That's too far away. It's too much for you to look at where your mental health is right now compared to where you want it to be. That's too far away. But what isn't far away is the next step. And the next step might simply be getting professional help and counseling. The next step, if you're depressed, might mean going to a doctor and getting medication. The next step might be joining a gym today. The next step might be ending a toxic relationship. The next step might be showing up to a 12-step group this week. The next step might be going to somebody at Madison Church and asking for help. Whatever it is, you can take that next step. And then the step after that, and the step after that. So what next step do you need to take today? And so as you're on this path of hope, take one step at a time. Take care of your body. Take God's hand. But finally, take heart. Take heart. So here's the thing about walking through valleys. Valleys always end. There is always a mountaintop that God is bringing you to. So take heart. That's what Elijah understood. Look at verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. And then incidentally, that's a, a very symbolic thing in, in scripture of the trials and, and, and things we need to do in order to get to where God wants us to be. 40 is a popular number. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. In other words, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. In the midst of Elijah's utter despair, God brought him back to the place where he had done miracles before. The place where he had given Moses the Ten Commandments. The place where every Jew knew God was present. 
And if you follow the story, this is where God speaks to Elijah in the following verses. He shows him that his story isn't done, that he has a big plan for him and that he's actually not alone. Look at verse 18. Elijah, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, I'm not done with you and you're not alone. I've got a whole new chapter that I'm writing for you. This is not the end. And what I find absolutely fascinating is that Elijah, who wanted to die, never actually died. In fact, if you follow the story, God takes him before he dies up to heaven in a chariot. Isn't that awesome? Now, God, I don't think he's going to take you to heaven in a chariot. But the point is this. God is not done with you. He's bringing you out of your valley to a mountaintop. He's working ahead of you for your good. He's writing a new chapter, even if you can't see it right now. And so take heart. Jesus would say these words, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Oh, take heart. I have overcome the world. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're on the path of despair or you know somebody who's on the path of despair. But hear me well, it's not the only path. There's another path waiting for you. It's the path of hope. It's a path where God says, I'm not done with you yet. It's a path he has waiting for you. So whether you are in the darkest of places or just struggling with some darkness in your life, hear me well, it is not over. God is inviting you to a new path, the path of hope. So will you take it? My prayer is that you would.